Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome back once again to Society Builders. And thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. In our last episode, we started our study of the message of the Universal House of Justice to the Continental Board of Counselors of December 30, 2021. We're going to continue just referring to this as the message. It's our mandate for the release of the society building power of the faith over the course of the next 24 years. Now, in that episode, we managed to work our way, however imperfectly, through just seven paragraphs, the introduction to the message and its conclusion, the bookends of the message. Today, we're going to jump straight into the middle of the message, section four, which explores the theme of social transformation. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that I'm dedicating a whole episode to the study of this one section of the message. I mean, over the course of the past 14 episodes, I've started every episode of the series with my greeting, thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. The theme song I wrote for this podcast series has as its chorus, join the conversation for social transformation. I mean, I've been shouting this theme of social transformation from the rooftops. It was this part of the message that stood out most for me, and it's packed with powerful constructs. So even though it's only five paragraphs, we're going to need the whole episode. Actually, we're going to need future episodes as well just to try, however imperfectly, to understand the contents of these five paragraphs. So today, we explore the theme of social transformation, the second part of our trilogy, Exploring Our Mandate for Society Building. Now, the title of the fourth section of the message is Contributing to Social Transformation. Now, immediately, that tells a story. I mean, just the title tells a whole story by itself. So what does that mean? Let's explore. Now, at the end of the day, society building is about change. It's not about reinforcing the status quo. It's about remedying the diseases which hold us back from achieving our fullest potential as societies. So it's about change. It's about transformation. So what we immediately read in this section heading is a vision that our mission is about contributing to change. It's about contributing to social transformation. So in the title, I think, we immediately get this first principle for this section, that we're in the business of change, not status quo. Now, the first paragraph in this section immediately introduces what I think is a massive idea. 
it explores the interaction between a person's spiritual life or their inner life and the environment around them, their social environment. Now, just drawing this connection is a big idea. I don't think it's an idea you see anywhere else. I think it's a uniquely Baha'i perspective. Here, the Universal House of Justice draws attention to the writings of Shoghi Effendi, who describes how the social environment provides the atmosphere in which souls can grow spiritually and reflect in full the light of God. Now, Shoghi Effendi explores this interaction between a person's inner life, their, their spirituality, and the world around them in a number of places. The letter that the Universal House of Justice is quoting from here in the message was written on behalf of the beloved guardian in 1933. Now, in another part of this same letter, we see this reference. He says, quote, we cannot segregate the human heart from the environment outside it and say that once one of these is reformed, everything will be improved. Man is organic with the world. His inner life molds the environment and is itself also deeply affected by it. The one acts upon the other and every abiding change in the life of man is the result of these mutual reactions." End quote. Wow. Again, this is so profound. This idea that we are organic with the world. We shape the environment around us and we're also affected by it. Now, Shoghi Effendi gives us a great example of this kind of interaction in describing the process of the unification of the American states. When the American forefathers were debating the formation of a republic, there were stark differences between the states, particularly between the urban north and the agrarian south. And there was a view that before unification could be attained, a change in individual attitudes needed to occur first. There were differences, and these differences had to be ironed out. They had to be resolved. Once they were resolved, a union could be forged. Now, had we waited for this, had we adopted this kind of approach, the colonial states would still not have unified to form a republic. But the act of uniting created the kind of environment where individual change could be facilitated. By forming a union, the kind of environment could be facilitated where changes in individual attitudes could also be fostered. So here you see this interaction between environment and individual. In fact, it was so successful that Yankees from the northern states have been known to travel to the southern states and survive. <laughs> People from north and south now even marry. I mean, this is remarkable stuff. And it's all possible because by forging a union, we created the atmosphere where individual change could occur. Let me give you another example here because I think this point is so incredibly important. Imagine your work environment. Now, people work in all kinds of different work environments. Some are incredibly supportive. Some are incredibly toxic. So imagine that you work in an environment that is highly toxic. You can see how the environment will affect your inner well-being, right? It's going to be a lot harder for you to be the kind of person 
you want to be. For example, it might be a highly competitive environment, but you want to be collaborative. But it's going to be harder for you to be collaborative in this kind of environment. And conversely, imagine that you work in a highly supportive and uplifting environment naturally. It's going to be so much easier for you to be your best self in that kind of environment. Now, of course, part of the whole point here is that even in toxic environments, those toxic environments can change. You can help elevate the very atmosphere in which you move. Now, obviously, that's not easy. But the more you change this culture, the more you'll also be uplifted by the very change you're cultivating. So you see what I mean here about this interaction between environment and character. So this is the focus of our change on both the inner life and the outer life of people, improving both our spiritual character and the social conditions of the societies around us. Both interact with and feed each other. There's a symbiotic relationship between them. Okay, moving on. Now, for us, this focus is reflected through a path of building capacity for service. Building capacity for service. Again, that's another major construct, building capacity for service. That construct tells a story. In the same way that we can grow in our intellectual knowledge as we build capacity through various grades in school, for example, we can also build capacity for service, getting better at it, having more skills that we can apply. Again, it's a unique perspective, right? We tend to think of service in much less sophisticated terms, like simply being available to serve. But this recognizes that we can build capacity here, like progressing through different grades at school. How cool, right? Now, the key element in building such capacity is cultivating an approach where people become protagonists of their own development. Okay, now that's another massive construct that we have to grapple with here. It's another big idea that our approach to society building is not imposed, that the process is one whereby we empower people to facilitate the change they desire. It's self-generative. It's such a massive concept. When you think of social and economic development, What's the picture that comes to your mind? What do you visualize? Perhaps you think of a population of starving people, for example, with someone or some group of people coming to help them, giving out food, giving out water, etc. Now, by the time people are facing starvation, there's probably little alternative to that scenario. But let's look at their plight before they were on the brink of starvation. How could things have been different? When we think of this kind of aid, we're usually thinking about a pastoral care kind of model. There's a donor or an expert or maybe a government helping the helpless. It's like charity. And there's a directionality to this. There's someone from above helping the dispossessed down below. And at its core, one of the key causes of the problem in the first place is the dependency which a population develops on others. When we position ourselves 
from above, we're reinforcing that dependency. And so even though we're helping on one level, we're often actually further aggravating the problem, even with the best of intent. But the Baha'i approach to society building is grounded in this idea of self-generative development. A community is the key driver in their own advancement. It's not something that comes down from above. I was incredibly fortunate in my own youth to have experienced a Baha'i project that I think made an effort to approach social development with this kind of approach. So I'm going to digress for a second to tell you my story here because I think it illustrates what we're talking about. Now, when I was young, I traveled to Alaska to take part in a large international Baha'i youth conference up there. After the conference, many youth volunteered to take part in summer teaching and service projects. Now, the Alaskan Baha'is are simply amazing in this department. I was part of a team that got flown out in planes that local Baha'is owned to super remote villages, hundreds of miles away from many cities. We worked in small teams of about four or five youth per team. Now, my team spent time among the Yupik people in the extreme west of Alaska. That's the bit of Alaska that's closest to Russia. And we had about two weeks of training for the method I'm describing to you here. So a pilot flew us out to a remote village, dropped us off there, and told us when he'd be back to pick us up, like in a few weeks. We then set up camp with the tents and the equipment we, we were carrying on our backs. Now, the soil here in this part of Alaska was mud on top of permafrost. So sleeping in our tents was like sleeping over a waterbed. It was sleeping over slushy mud. And there were a number of challenges just with sorting out the logistics of our living circumstances. Trust me, I have plenty of stories to tell here. Maybe we'll save that for another occasion. But once our camp was set up, we immediately headed out to the village to meet with the village elders. After all, they were expecting us. So we arrived, presented ourselves, and offered ourselves in service to their community. And it was their decision to decide how we could best serve. And this is one of the main points in my story here. We didn't go in there as experts telling them how we could solve their problems, like just about everybody else did. We went there to serve how they thought we could best be of service. Now, this village had every problem under the sun, and I mean in spades. Alcohol was rampant. Life was violent. Kids were being abused. Spouses were being abused. You'd hear screaming and shouting through the night. Rape and incest were common, and there were serious infrastructure problems like poor water supply. You could look to the village and see a million problems, but there was one problem that dwarfed all others, and that was the loss of self-esteem. You see, the Yupik were forced to stop speaking their language, to stop sharing their legends, to stop being Yupik. Missionaries came in and saw their religious practices as paganistic, and they worked to eradicate it. That's the reason they were forbidden from speaking their language, forbidden from sharing their legends. I mean, they were forbidden from practicing any semblance of their native religious practices. And obviously, that struck at the very core of who they were. And much as they tried, they didn't feel they could properly become the kind of white men they were being told they should become. They were threatened with going to hell, and eventually they came to accept that as their fate. So they eventually acquiesced. They accepted that they were going to hell. 
you can see how this only further reinforces their sense of helplessness and their loss of self-esteem. Now, life on the tundra was also hard. So the government came in and provided. Little by little, this whittled away at their lifestyle. Eventually, they no longer needed to work, to hunt, or do much of anything that was particularly productive. So they learned to stay at home watching TV all day long. But obviously, that doesn't feel particularly fulfilling. So materially, they've become dependent on the state. Culturally, they've become desolate. All of this strikes at their sense of self-esteem. It's truly a tragic plight. Now, I can't speak for other parts of Alaska, but this is what life was like in the village we were sent to. So picture life in the village and see how great both the material and spiritual needs of these people were. So it's easy to see how an outsider could come here and pick any of a million problems and impose a solution from above to help them. But how would that help their self-esteem? So when we came and asked the elders about how we could best serve, that was about recognizing the real problem. It wasn't a solution to any of the many issues that plagued them. It was in helping, even if through a very modest effort, in empowering their capacity to address their own problems. Now, the elders asked us to help in the construction of their town hall. To be honest, I didn't really see this as the biggest need up there, but my sense of priorities didn't matter. And let's be real. I had no experience with construction work, and climbing and working on top of a tall scaffold was really scary, so this kind of work wouldn't have been my first preference. There are a hundred of other ways I would have preferred serving, but none of that mattered. What mattered was that they saw this as their priority. It was about further empowering them in their self-development. So I climbed up the scaffolds and did my best at the construction work. Now, as we hammered away, the local youth came out to meet us, mostly out of their curiosity. And along the way, they'd say, hey, how much are you guys getting paid to do that work? And we'd explain to them that, well, you know, we're not getting paid, it's service. And I'd say to them, hey, what are you guys doing? To which they'd say, nothing. So I'd say, well, why don't you join us? And in this way, some of the local youth joined forces with us. They climbed up the scaffold and they started hammering away with us. And while we were working together, we'd trade stories and somewhere along the line, I'd ask them, so tell me your legends. Well, of course, they didn't know their legends. So they had to take us to their grandparents and ask them about their legends. And at this point, their grandparents would tear up it was like this was the first time these youth had shown any interest in their heritage. And they'd start to tell a legend, and you could see how mesmerized the youth were in hearing these legends. It was all pure magic, such a powerful and moving moment. Now, I don't want to exaggerate our impact here. Ours was a very short-term effect, a pebble in the ocean. But however modest, it feels like it was a step in the right direction. And I share this story because I think it helps illustrate this idea that development is about self-generative development and not about aid being imposed from above. And I want to add in one more thought here about this idea of people being the agents of their own advancement. 
I think people are increasingly feeling that the social systems around them are failing, failing on many levels. But the problem is that they don't know an alternative. They crave change. They hope for change. They yearn for change, but it only seems to get more elusive. And so they feel increasingly helpless. This idea that you can make a difference in your society, I think that's an idea that will get incredible traction. The idea that we can help empower people to make the change they want, not having them sit dependent on the state or anyone else to bring about that change. I think that's an incredibly powerful idea. And I think it's an idea that will resonate. Okay, that was all a bit of a digression. Let's get back to our main story here. So the point here was that a community should drive its own advancement. That's the big idea here. And that's what we're trying to empower. It's the foundation upon which we build our approach to social transformation. As we increasingly engage with the societies around us, we will increasingly come in contact with the many social, economic, or cultural barriers that impede people's spiritual or material progress. In many cases, these barriers will intersect with our initiatives, necessitating that we respond as our circumstances permit. And it's in this context that we see within clusters three dimensions that form a single unified endeavor, expansion and consolidation, social action, and contributing to prevalent discourses. Now, these three constructs sit at the heart and soul of society building, and we'll have many episodes exploring each of these constructs because they're just so incredibly important. So expansion and consolidation, well, that's the engine for our growth. That speaks to our capacity to share the faith with others and accompany them in their path of deepening their knowledge, understanding, and capacity to serve. And we'll talk about discourse in a minute, but for now, let's focus on social action. What is social action? Now, social action is like the story I was telling you about our project among the Yupik in Alaska. It's efforts at the grassroots to improve the social and economic development of a people. As human resources in a cluster grow, they develop a capacity for wider service. And this is the case whether we're talking about life in the village, like among the Yupik, or whether we're talking about urban settings where we often work with schools, civil agencies, or even government bodies. There are many different forms that social action is taking throughout the Baha'i world in fields including the environment, agriculture, health, the arts, and particularly education. In fact, in a later portion of the message, the Universal House of Justice highlights education as the signature contribution of Baha'is in most parts of the world. And the best example, I think, of this is the effort by the Baha'is in the first half of the last century to erect a network of over 60 schools throughout Iran, in a country which at the time was almost entirely illiterate. 
We had Dr. Mujan Molman as our amazing tour guide in navigating us through the story in episodes 9 and 10. So if you missed that story, go back and have a listen. It's a truly amazing and inspiring story. It sets an example. Okay, now over the course of the current nine-year plan, we're going to see a lot of growth in these kinds of social actions. In many cases, stimulated by the growing availability of special training courses in specialized areas. This is another theme we'll cover in future episodes. There are a variety of ways in which such initiatives can best be organized. In some cases, they'll be guided by local spiritual assemblies. And these assemblies, in turn, will go through a bit of a learning curve as they learn how to best support such initiatives. So some initiatives will be guided by local assemblies, but in other cases, they'll take the form of a Baha'i-inspired organization. And the number of these kinds of Baha'i-inspired organizations will probably grow. What we mean by Baha'i-inspired organization is one that isn't structured within the administration of the faith, but which nonetheless strives to apply Baha'i principles. And we're going to explore the contributions of many of these Baha'i-inspired organizations in future episodes. And of course, there'll also be personal initiatives, and we'll talk about that a little bit later today. And we'll need to learn from all of these initiatives, all the way from the local level to the national to the international level. So a key feature of the immediate future for us is this growing capacity to contribute to social action. It's going to be amazing. Now, closely connected with this capacity for engaging in social action is a capacity for contributing to the social discourses of a society. Now, what is a social discourse? The Universal House of Justice defines it here as a capacity for participating in conversations about a matter that affects people's lives and offering a perspective grounded in Baha'i principles and Baha'i experience. It's something we can apply in our daily lives, in our studies, in our occupations, and in all other social spheres in which we move. Now, this is a skill, which means by implication that it's a skill we can continuously improve upon. And one of the ways that we can cultivate it is through the training institutes, which we'll talk about more in our next episode. Now, this kind of discourse is going to happen at all levels. It'll happen at the international level through the Baha'i International Community. It'll happen at the national level through offices of external affairs, but it'll also happen at the local level in your clusters. One of the best examples of this, I think, in my lifetime at least, was the letter from the Universal House of Justice to the people of the world way back in 1986. Now, 1986 was the United Nations International Year of Peace, and Baha'is in every nook and cranny of the world responded to take this message to the people. I think we did this with unprecedented zeal and energy. I mean, Baha'is came out of nowhere like a stampede, engaging at every level, from the local level all the way to the global stage, engaging with the peace discourse. And it found expression in an unprecedented flourishing of the arts. I mean, 
All of this gave us a glimpse of our capacity to engage society with meaningful contributions to social discourse. And the need for engaging in such discourse grows considerably with our expansion and consolidation. As we grow, as we engage more with society, we become more and more aware of their challenges and the aspirations of people to overcome them. And in this context, it becomes more and more important for the Baha'i community as a unified body to offer its, quote, considered perspectives on obstacles to social progress and on issues that weigh on the minds and spirits of those with whom it interacts, end quote. In other words, the more we engage with society, the more we have to respond to its needs. And as we respond, bringing new perspectives to age-old problems, something else starts to happen. Society increasingly starts to turn to us as a source of moral insight. Now, this is a novel idea for most Baha'is, that society will increasingly demand us to bring our principles and our unifying framework to the table to help solve their problems. That society will come knocking at our door. But again, I've seen what this looks like. Remember from our first episode, my story of the Racism Anonymous initiative that my college club at the University of Texas embarked upon and how once a race crisis exploded on campus, the university turned down the mediation services of the FBI and instead turned to us for help. That's what I believe the future looks like. Society demanding our help because we have a unique perspective, because we have a unifying framework, because we have something to offer that they can't find anywhere else. Increasingly, we'll be known for the type of services and the unifying framework we provide. And as society comes to grapple with these very needs, they'll turn to us seeking our help. Our assemblies are not just institutions for Baha'i communities. They're institutions for society. And increasingly, as we engage more with society, we'll learn to adjust to that reality. And over time, our efforts to contribute to societal discourse will get better. They'll become more systematic. We'll become more adept at engaging constructively in such discourse and in helping find consensus. We'll get better at bringing our perspectives to community leaders and to spaces where representative of different groups and interests can find common ground through consultation. This is a very distinct approach, and it's an approach which will develop a reputation for over time. And this process is already well in motion. One more thing. So far, we've talked primarily about community initiatives for engaging in prevalent discourses. But we should recognize that this also occurs at the individual level. 
beyond your contributions to your community's efforts to engage in such discourse, you'll also make personal efforts to contribute to such discourse in ways available uniquely to you. So you'll want to think in terms of searching for your own opportunities, for the ways in which society building speaks to you. This happens in the choices you make in your vocational sphere, your ability to elevate the atmosphere you work in, to influence your field, and it happens in the choices you make to support the activities of like-minded groups and organizations. Such initiatives translate into projects both large and small, sometimes even resulting in the formation of those Baha'i-inspired organizations we talked about earlier, or in specialist entities focused on specific discourses like that Racism Anonymous effort we spoke about earlier. But above all, the point here is that you should feel empowered. You have a mandate for personally engaging in the social discourses of the day and for finding your own path to contributing to society building. And this is something you can do in addition to supporting your community initiatives. And you're not alone. Your initiatives still benefit from being guided by the principles of the faith. And you can learn and apply the insights growing out of all of these initiatives worldwide. And of course, you always have the benefit of being able to draw on the wise counsel of your local or national spiritual assembly for guidance. The community, both globally and locally, is there to help support such initiative. In this way, we see a harmonious expression of our faith in the path of service at both the individual and community levels in response to what the Universal House of Justice refers to as the tribulations of a perplexed and sorely agitated world. Wow. Now, today we only covered five paragraphs of the message, just the section on social transformation. And we've only given you a bird's eye view in discussing these constructs because these are constructs we're going to explore much further and much deeper in upcoming episodes. Because social action and engaging with discourse are skills. And there are important principles we'll explore in working to develop, exercise, and advance these skills. Now, last time we focused on the historic nature of the plans, that sense of destiny that pervades our new mission. Today, we explored the process of social transformation, the arena where our society building initiatives will be focused. In our next episode, we'll explore how the machinery of the faith can best support these ambitions, exploring the role of clusters, training institute, and the Baha'i administrative order. There is a lot of ground to cover there. And for that episode, I'll have a special guest, but you'll have to tune in next time to find out who that is and to hear more. It's all part of the adventure, so you won't want to miss our next episode. Well, that's it for today. Thanks again for joining. I look forward to joining you again next time on Society Builders. 
Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. So engage with your local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting. It's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. The high faith has a lot to say Helping people discover a better way With discourse and social action Framed by unity Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation For social transformation Society builders Ooh. Conversation, oh, oh, oh. social transformation, oh, oh, oh. society builder.